0: Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 14. Uh, if you have a, a, a Bible from the welcome table, it's on page 902. We're going to cover verses 12 through 31 today. Chapters 14 and 15, we're getting close, right? There's only 16 chapters. We're going to finish this gospel next month, Lord willing. Um, Chapters 14 and 15 are what's known as Christ's passion that comes from the Latin word that means to suffer, okay? It's, it's more than just his deep sense of love and, and, and feelings toward us, that, that passion toward, uh, toward those whom he's saving, but it's, it, it's, it's in reference to his suffering and death that's going to be described in these two chapters, 14 and 15. The overall theme of chapter 14 is the abandonment of Jesus. Um, from here, we're going to feel the pace quicken rapidly toward Jesus' death on the cross. And as believers, we're going we're gonna to watch our Lord suffer and die alone and dejected. And we're going to wrestle with this tension of, of knowing that all of these things must take place because he said they must, right? And yet at the same time, wanting to step in and stand up for Jesus because we know who he is. This has been made clear to us by Mark all throughout his gospel. We want, we want to prevent the crucifixion from happening because Jesus doesn't deserve it. But today's passage is going to remind us that Jesus doesn't need our help. We need his and it's because he stepped in as our substitute that we can have deep and lasting communion and fellowship with him so i want to i want to pray specifically for this word that we're about to take in father we thank you for your word we thank you that it gives light to our eyes we thank you that it is pure and right and good we thank you that it revives the soul. So we pray that you'd open our eyes this morning, that we would see the glory of Christ in the sacrificial lamb of the Passover. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. You ever been wounded by a close friend? Ever been betrayed by their trust? Maybe, you, maybe they they shared something uh, that they to, that you, you told them in confidence. Maybe they made a or they made a promise that they didn't keep. Have you ever wounded a close friend in those ways? Have you been the one to betray their trust? Have you shared something with others that you shouldn't have? Made a promise that you didn't keep. Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. But but the thing that we all have to wrestle with today, that the scripture won't let us get past, is that in the most important relationship that we can have, our relationship with Jesus Christ, every single one of us is guilty of betrayal and broken promises. We all fall away from our Lord despite our best intentions. In the passage that John preached last week, Mark, uh, we've talked about this all throughout Mark, the and sandwich, right, where he takes uh, two stories and, 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 uh, breaks one apart and then inserts another one in between in this sandwich fashion. And he, in the, in that passage last week, Mark sandwiched an act of devotion by an unnamed woman between the treacherous plot of the chief priests and the scribes and the decision of one of Jesus' own disciples, his, his own friend, to carry that out. And in today's passage, Mark has constructed another sandwich. Only this time we're going to see Christ's promise of devotion sandwiched between predictions of betrayal and abandonment by his disciples and all of this is in the context of eating the Passover meal together and so this thought that we can keep in mind as we go through this is this because Christ is our true Passover lamb we take the Lord's supper in remembrance of his sacrifice and we do it in communion with him We're spiritually nourished by his grace as we're reminded of his faithfulness to us, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness to him. And and we have fellowship with him through his spiritual presence with us. His spirit dwells in us, seals us for the day of redemption. As we partake of the symbols of his sacrifice and we take the Lord's Supper, when we do that, Christ, our Passover lamb, he feeds our souls and he strengthens our faith. This is why we do that. And so in today's passage, we're going to witness the first Lord's Supper. Now, some call it the Last Supper. It might, it might be labeled that in your, in your Bible. Because it's Christ's final meal with his disciples before his death. Um, I like to think of it as the Last Supper because it's the final time that the Passover meal for all who put their faith in Christ it is centered around the first exodus of God for the people of Egypt. It's the Lord's Supper now because it's now centered around our Lord Jesus Christ who is the true Passover lamb who shed blood, covers all who trust in him and causes God's judgment to pass over them. His sacrificial and his substitutionary death brought about the new and ultimate exodus of his people from slavery to sin, Satan, and death. And so with that in mind, let's read how Mark lays this out. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. As this scene opens up, it's now Thursday in the Passion Week, okay? Uh, At the beginning of the week, Jesus came in in his triumphal entry in in Jerusalem. It's Thursday now. Christ will be crucified tomorrow, Friday. We need to let that reality sink in as we continue through this passage this morning. Mark notes in in verse 12 that it's the first day of unleavened bread. That's uh, when they sacrifice the Passover lamb in preparation for the Passover meal it had to be eaten inside Jerusalem between sunset and midnight, according to God's command in, <clears throat> excuse me, in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Passover happens on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's Passover, and then it's a week-long uh, uh, festival of unleavened bread. And, and that's, that feast commemorates the, Israel's departure from Egypt, but it also symbolizes the removal of sin, the, 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 the removal of leaven from the bread, and the removal of sin uh, from the people and living uh, a holy life dedicated to God. Now note here, this is, this is important, that the Passover happens before the feast of the unleavened bread. This is a reminder that the putting away of sin, the call to holy living, and obedience to God happens in response to the salvation and the redemption that god gives it 's not a prerequisite for it that 'll be even more evident as this passage progresses there 's a lot of preparation to be done in advance of the Passover meal, so the disciples ask Jesus where in Jerusalem he would like them to go and get things ready and then mark lays uh, what Mark lays out in verses thirteen through sixteen sounds Really similar to the description of when Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 11, the triumphal entry. In both instances, he sent two disciples ahead of him into the city, and he gave them very specific and unmistakable instructions, details about what they would find when they got there. What did they find in chapter 11? A colt of a donkey tied to a door, right? What did they find when they got into Jerusalem here? A man carrying water. Why is that unmistakable? because typically women did it. They would know who they're looking for when they saw him. In both instances, Jesus also told his disciples what to say once they found what they were looking for. Here in verse 14, they followed the man with water into the house of the owner and then asked the owner to show them where the, the, the room where the teacher can eat the Passover meal with his disciples. Um, and during the festival... It was a Jewish, Jewish custom that anyone who had a spare room, who lived in Jerusalem would, would uh, it was necessary for them to make that available for all the inflow of pilgrims coming in from other cities where they lived, so that they could have a place to celebrate the Lord's uh, uh, the, the Passover um, in, in the city. So it's not unusual that this this room upstairs was ready, furnished. Mark says, but that doesn't mean with furniture. It means with rugs and carpets and table for them to recline at and, and eat and celebrate the Passover supper. And it's in this upper room that the disciples prepare the Passover meal. I, I love verse 16. When, when the disciples went into the city, it says that they, they found everything just as Jesus had told them. That also sounds like what Mark said in chapter 11 in the triumphal entry when they found the donkey cold, Now, it's possible that Jesus could have made prearrangements, but even if that were true, we can't miss the divine sovereignty that's taking place here. Jesus, as God, not only knows what's coming, but he's governing its fulfillment. He's not wishy-washy. He's not making an educated guess. He's telling them exactly what is going to happen and what they are to do in response to it. This is a vital thing for us to keep in mind as things seem to go rapidly downhill from here. Why would Mark describe this Passover preparation with with wording that parallels his description of the triumphal entry? I think it's to help his readers make an important connection. The king's triumph is going to come through his sacrifice. His never-ending kingdom will be inaugurated by his own death, This is the way. Look at verse 17. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve. The one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Still Thursday, but now it's evening. The sun has gone down, and they have from sundown to midnight to eat this meal. And so it's time to eat. And while they're reclining at the table, eating in intimate friendship and fellowship, which is what that was a symbol of, that, that table fellowship, it's not just a gathering for food. It is, it's, it's communion with one another. It's, it's an intimacy in relationship. And as they fix their minds and hearts on God's deliverance of Israel, Jesus hits them with this devastating truth. One of you will betray me. Now, as the readers, we're, we're immediately thinking Judas here, right? Because Mark has already told us that back in verses 10 and 11. But we need to put ourselves in the room reclining at the table with Jesus here for a minute. He says, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They're all eating with him. Every one of them is sharing in this meal with him. What would you do if you heard that as you reach down and you take another bite? Probably the same thing they did, right? Right? Mark says that they began to be distressed. It's the same word that he used to describe the rich young ruler when he walked away dejected and sorrowful from Jesus back in chapter 10. It means deeply grieved. It means sorrowful. And in Mark's gospel, it's it's used only in these two places to describe those who fail Jesus. They're distressed. It It can't be me. There's no way. Can you imagine failing Jesus? Can you imagine betraying him? You would never, right? That's exactly what they're all thinking. So one by one, they say to him, surely not I. It can't be me. There's no way. And Judas takes his turn echoing the question so as not to be found out, but he knows full well that Jesus is talking about him. And Jesus' response in verse 20 doesn't really help relieve their worry. It's not like they go and say, surely not I, and he's like, no, you're good. Right? What does he say? It's one of the 12. The one who's dipping bread into the bowl with me. They're all dipping bread into the bowl with him. That's the part of the meal that they're sharing. Again, Mark helps us, though, because Jesus says that it's one of the 12. That's the exact phrase Mark uses when he refers to Judas going to betray Jesus in verse 10 and 11. He says, Judas, one of the 12. So as we read, we make that connection. If only the other 11 had Mark's gospel to read in that moment, right? They might pick up on what's happening here. But then they'd also see how Mark goes further and sandwiches these things together. And they'd realize that he's going to come back around to the rest of them in verses 27 through 31. But we're not there yet. Right now, we're, we're convinced that Judas is the betrayer of Jesus that Jesus is talking about. And right now, the disciples have no clue. The word translated as betray in verses 18 and 21 means to hand over or to deliver up it carries the idea of of giving up a person to someone else usually to authorities it's the same descriptor that Jesus used in the second prediction of his death in chapter 9 when he said the son of man is going to be what betrayed into the hands of men and in his third prediction in chapter 10 when he said the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and then they will hand him over To the Gentiles, he's going to be betrayed and betrayed and betrayed. It's important that we keep in mind that the betrayal of Jesus leads to the death of Jesus. So that we can better hear these difficult words that Jesus says in verse 21. For the Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed it would have been better for him if he had not been born and again we see that scripture holds both god's sovereignty and man's responsibility out together it doesn't pit them against each other. It doesn't cancel. One doesn't cancel the other out. Both are true at the same time in a way that we'll never fully understand on this side of eternity. But scripture is unashamed to point that out. God the Father had foreordained, had preplanned, had put in motion, had set it in motion that Christ would die. That he would suffer and die as a substitute for sinners. It was part of his plan of redemption from before the foundation of the world. Scripture tells us that. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Jesus is identifying the Son of Man with the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. You should read that this week. And he's showing how he's the fulfillment of both. The Jews didn't put the Messiah and the suffering servant together. Jesus did. But it was the sinful betrayal of Judas that brought about the fulfillment of what was written. Judas made a choice of his own free will in accordance with his sinful nature. And he betrayed jesus he is responsible for his sinful actions and he deserves the judgment and wrath of god because of them but woe, jesus says to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed it would have been better for him if he had never been born judas needs the redemption and forgiveness that christ will ultimately bring about through his death on the cross but he won't receive it why Because he'll take his own life without seeking the forgiveness that the risen Christ freely offers. And now his eternal punishment is worse than if if he'd ever, or had never been born. These are difficult words. They're true words. They come from the mouth of our Lord, who will go to the cross, not because he can't reverse what Judas has done, but because he won't reverse what God has done. And that leads us into the middle of Mark's sandwich where we hear some of the most beautiful words of Jesus. Look at verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The bread and the cup were a part of the Passover meal. But do you notice what Mark doesn't mention in here as they eat? What's missing? The lamb. The Passover lamb that they prepared, that they sacrificed that day, and they they ate together. In the original Passover, God judged Egypt by killing their firstborn, and he, he passed over every Israelite house with the lamb's blood that covered their door. And after that, he brought the Israelites out of Egypt and he delivered them from slavery. This is what the Passover meal remembers and celebrates. Now, he will judge his own son and he will sacrifice him as the true Passover lamb for the deliverance of all believers from God's wrath and from slavery to sin, Satan, and death. Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. What does that sound like? Remember when they fed the 4,000 and the 5,000? Only this time he's not telling them to distribute it to others. He's telling them to take it and eat it. He says, take it. This is my body. Now we need to remember Mark wrote this in Greek, but Jesus wasn't speaking Greek. He was speaking Aramaic, which was the language of the day. And the word that he would have used for body would have meant uh, my whole being or my myself." In the same way, the Greek word that Mark uses here for his Roman audience, it doesn't mean flesh, but it could be translated as being. The bread is a symbol of of Christ's self-giving, wholehearted devotion to his disciples and offering not only his physical body to be broken for them, but also offering himself to them in fellowship. Take this bread and eat it. This is my body. And then he took the cup in verse 23, and it was most likely the third of four cups served during the meal, which was the cup of blessing or the cup of redemption that corresponded to the third of four promises given in Exodus chapter 6. God promised to rescue the Israelites from Egypt. He promised to free them from slavery. He promised to redeem them by his power, that third promise, and he promised to restore their relationship with him. And Jesus gave thanks, and then he gave the cup to them, and they all drank from it, it says. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The covenant he's referring to is the new covenant that God speaks of in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. It says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, where they said, we'll obey, we'll do it all. My covenant, God says, that they broke even though I'm their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This is the covenant that Christ will seal with his own blood, which will be poured out for many. His words would ring an echo of Isaiah 53 in the minds of those reclining at the table with him as they drank from this cup. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12 say, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. Speaking of Christ's resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as a spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Again, Jesus is applying the death of the suffering servant in Isaiah to his own death that will take place in just a matter of hours. In Mark 10:45, Jesus said that the son of man did not come to be served but to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, using the language of Isaiah 53. And on the cross, he, he will willingly submit himself to death as God's righteous servant in order to bear the sin of many and intercede for the rebels. And in doing so, he will enable all who believe in him to know the Lord and to be forgiven of their iniquity by their God, who will never again remember their sins. Jesus finishes in verse 25 with a promise that points both to his imminent death and to a future hope. He says, truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new again in the kingdom of God. This is the last time he will drink the cup of wine with his disciples because he's about to trade it for the cup of God's wrath on the cross. But notice the key word he uses here. Doesn't say I'll never drink this again. He says I won't drink this again until... Until what? He intends to drink the cup of wine again, but when? That day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The cup of God's wrath will be poured out on Christ at the cross, but once it's poured out, it's finished. It's done. Mission accomplished. Christ work is done. And on Sunday, he's going to rise from the grave forever. And the kingdom of God that Jesus said was near in chapter 1 has been inaugurated, and it will be fully consummated on that day when Christ returns. This is the same language Mark used in chapter 13 to talk about the end of the age, that day. The Passover meal was celebrated in anticipation of the coming Messiah and the ultimate day of liberation for the Jews. Now, the Lord's Supper is celebrated in anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb who was slain for us. Verse 26 says that they sung a hymn. This would have been most likely Psalms 115 through 118. They would have sung these words right here before heading out to the, out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus will be betrayed in the garden Psalm 118, 25 through 29. Lord, save us. Remember that? Hosanna. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. They sung that, and they had no idea that that festival sacrifice was going to be Christ himself. Mark finishes the sandwich with more devastating words from Jesus to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Look at verse 27. Then he said to them, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. During the the supper, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And now he says, all of you will fall away. Sandwiched on either side of Christ's picture of his utmost devotion to his disciples is the reality that every single one of them will utterly fail him. Again, in verse 27, we see both the sovereignty of God's plan and the guilty actions of man. All of you will fall away because it is written. And then he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, which points to Jesus' death as the action of God. I will strike this shepherd, but done in order to purify and renew his people. But in verse 28, the good shepherd reminds his sheep that his death will not be the end. And after he rises, he will gather them again to himself because he has compassion on those who are like sheep without a shepherd, right? Right? He will gather them in Galilee where it all began. So we have to ask why does Jesus promise them hope after their betrayal of him, but he pronounces a woe over Judas for his betrayal? The Greek word Mark uses for fall away here is a passive verb that implies letting oneself be led into sin. Theirs is not a premeditated and willful rebellion like judas They're not planning on this. Theirs is a, is a lapse in judgment in a moment of weakness that leads to unfaithfulness. You ever been there? It's still sin. They're still responsible for it. But they're not actively seeking it out. They don't plan on abandoning Jesus, but when the pressure builds, what happens? They scatter. None of them, none of them will stand with him. And in true Peter fashion, he tells Jesus he's wrong. He boldly claims that he has what it takes to stand by Jesus. Even if everybody else around me, behind me, falls away, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it. But in true Jesus fashion, he lovingly and truthfully exposes the weakness of Peter's heart. Peter, your devotion to me won't even last the night. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me not once, but three times. Three times. But Peter just can't believe that. He brushes off Jesus' warning, even though Jesus is speaking truth here. He says, if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. And they all express their own steadfast devotion to Jesus by saying the same thing. And he's like, you're right, you're right. I shouldn't have said that. Where have we heard that word deny before? In chapter 8, verse 34. After Jesus declares the first time that he will die and rise again, Peter says, nope, you're wrong. That's not going to happen. He rebukes him and then he tells him, he, he tells him, that, 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 no, this is not why you're here. But Then Jesus turns And looks at the rest of them in Mark 8, 34 and 35. And says, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Peter thinks he's expressing his utmost devotion to Jesus, but he's missed the whole point. And so have the rest of of the disciples. If I have to die, if, Jesus says you must. You must die if you're going to follow me, he says. The only way to keep from denying Jesus is to deny yourself. Jesus didn't look at them and say, you guys are right. He's exposing their weakness, their frailty, their failure, their unfaithfulness. But all of that is meant to magnify his own love, compassion, mercy, faithfulness to us. And it's here that we realize that we're included in the all of you who will fall away. We can't read the foolishness of Peter's words in verses 29 and 31 without hearing our own voices say them, right? Like like we want it in our hearts. We want to be able to, Lord, there's no way. If I have to die with you, I will. I would never deny you, especially now that I have this and I know how it all plays out. But we're confronted here with our own weakness and our own propensity to fall away and scatter from our shepherd. There's a hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that expresses it so well. It says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We want so desperately to be able to say we won't deny Jesus, don't we? But we have to admit that that's just not true. We're prone to wander, right? Can you feel that? Does that weigh against you? This desire for greater devotion to Christ and yet this this sense of of unfaithfulness to him at, at the least amount of pressure? We're prone to leave the God we love for lesser things. We're prone to wander away from rest in his eternal sovereign care toward anxiety over the outcome of an election of temporary leaders. We're prone to wander away from the intimacy of his pure and steadfast love and toward the cheapened and superficial approval of others, many that we don't even know except online. We're prone to wander away from the guidance and protection of his good and perfect truth and toward the deception of compromise and concession to the pressures of the cultural voice. We're prone to wander away from dependence upon God's grace and toward reliance on our own strength. We're all prone to fall away, and we all have fallen away. Many times in our attempt to follow Jesus, this is the point that Mark is making here. Sandwiched between the failure of every single one of his disciples is the faithful, steadfast, Perfect devotion of Jesus Christ. All of the words that Jesus has spoken in this passage, every single one of them will come true. From the betrayal of Judas, to the falling away of the rest of the twelve, to his death, to his resurrection, to his reinstatement and regathering of his own, to the marriage supper of the Lamb yet to come in the kingdom of God. Truly, I tell you, could preface all of those things. And the Lord's Supper reveals both the necessity of Christ's sacrifice and his deep, self-giving love for those who wander. That hymn continues, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. It's Christ in my place. It's Christ in your place. This is the gospel that we must agree with and believe. Isaiah 53, four through six says, yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken. We said it was his fault. Struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. Every one of you will fall away. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. This is the good news that we celebrate. And remember when we take the Lord's Supper together, we proclaim Christ's death in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. And we do this continually until he returns. And while we remember our deliverance provided by our great Passover lamb, we commune with him and with one another in deep fellowship as we take the bread and the fruit of the vine together. And we do it again until he comes, knowing that there's a day where that final meal happens and all things are made new. We take the Lord's Supper together every time we do, hoping it's the last. Because we believe in Christ's promise that one day it will be. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful where we can never be. We thank you that in spite of us, you remain true to the redemptive plan of the Father, faithful to carry it out on behalf of wretched people who even in our best intentions cannot remain faithful to you. We thank you for giving us this means of grace by which we can be nourished deep down in our souls as we take this together in remembrance of your death and proclaim that as the means of forgiveness for our sins. Even as we look forward because of your resurrection to our own resurrection And your return and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where we will feast and celebrate and rejoice in our God who has done it. We love you and we thank you for this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.